15-minute cities and other things the mainstream media tells you are conspiracy theories. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. your news from the mainstream media, you would believe that 15-minute cities are just a zoning plan for municipalities that will increase the convenience in your lives and not, as I like to call it, the ant farm that they're going to put you in and then close the lid. But they've been around for a long, long time. My guest today has done her research on them as she tends to do on things that are climate change motivated. We're also discussing AstraZeneca's CEO and his quest for net zero healthcare. Remember this? And finally, we can also save a lot of carbon because people don't know, but the uh, healthcare uh, services actually uh, produce 4% of uh, carbon emissions in the world. That's on average in the world, but in advanced uh, countries like the US, and I'm sure it's the same in Canada, 8% of <coughs> carbon emissions come from the healthcare sector. And it's mostly in hospitals. So going to a hospital is bad for you, bad for your health, but you cost money, and also you generate a lot of carbon. So if we can keep people out of the hospital and cure them quickly, we will really ha affect uh, 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 people, but also uh, countries and societies. Uh, in a big way. So the guy who wants you to get on a never-ending round of boosters that don't work, that are individually packaged, wants you to be concerned about the climate footprint of your healthcare services. Hmm. Seems legit. Tonight, my guest is Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. We're talking about all that, plus what she has described as a blood libel by former NDP leader Thomas Mulcair and one of the current NDP MPs, Leah Gazan. So here's Michelle Sterling. So joining me now is my friend and good friend of Rebel News and the show, Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And I wanted to have Michelle on because she's sort of a Calgarian or Calgarian adjacent. I don't want to give out the exact location of the climate cabin, um, but you've done some real research, Michelle, into Calgary's climate plan. And before we started recording, we sort of talked about how cities have become the focus of these climate plans as some countries reject them because they're overly expensive, cities become the fallback and cities tend to be more progressive. And as you pointed out before we started recording, that's where the majority of the population lives. So all you need is a few mayors on the side of the climate scare. And there you go. An enormously expensive climate plan, as is the case in Calgary. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, you know, I did a recent presentation for uh, Alberta Prosperity Project, which was on lockdowns in 15-minute cities and how lockdowns were the open door to the fourth industrial revolution. So if you want to look at these 15-minute cities, you can go back to um, deadline 2020, which was written in 2016. And in it, this was written by a consulting firm called Arup. And in it, they proposed that every person should have a carbon footprint of 2.9 tons CO2 equivalent, CO2E it's called. And uh, presently, Canadians have about a 17 ton CO2E um, carbon footprint. So the intention of these 15-minute cities is to reduce your carbon footprint. Yes, it's true that it's nice and convenient to be walkable. In my Calgary area of Beltline Bankview, I love walking down the street there. It's a fabulous part of town. It's great. But you can also, you know, I also love driving to Chinook Center. I love driving up to Market Mall. And, uh, you know, it's a great part of the city. I love going up to the uh, ethnic supermarkets up in the Northeast, uh, you know, Tata Mall and all, all those fabulous places. I buy my Indian clothing and scarves up there. So, you know, uh, as long as I can get around the city as I choose, fine. But that's not the objective. And I'll tell you why. 
if you look at the exponential roadmap that was issued in the fall of 2019, one of the things that these climate zealots wanted to do was to reduce personal mobility and traffic transportation to 3%. So what happened during lockdowns? That's really what happened, right? Because people did not go to work. People did not have the opportunity to drive to all the little shops that they like to go to. They could only go to the big stores. So, um, you know, that was a huge limitation. And there were uh, restrictions on how often you could go and where you could go. You might be questioned about why you were out and about unless you were on foot, even if you were on foot. Um, what else happened? Oh, of course, the hospital shut down. So on a normal day, there would be thousands of people uh, and worldwide. There would be millions of people going to and from medical appointments, hospital interventions, visiting people at hospitals. That was all cut off, right? So only essential needs were treated at hospitals. And schools. On a normal day, parents would be driving their kids to school if it was far enough. School buses would be out in number driving millions of kids all over the place every single school day. All cut, right? So this exponential roadmap came out in September of 2019. And I believe that it was implemented on the back of the initial COVID lockdown. I'm going to say that I think that COVID is real. I think that people... Uh, we're probably justified in saying, you know, it's a new condition. We're not sure what it is. Let's lock down for a couple of weeks, a month. Fine. But uh, subsequent to that, I think that the uh, climate zealots with the powers that be simply took that opportunity and tried to lock down. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because in 2015, Evo de Boer, who was the um, executive chair of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, that's the political arm of the climate movement at the UN, he said that in order to meet Paris targets, we'll have to lock down the economy for two years. Hmm. Funny, hey? <laughs> and so this deadline 2020 which was initially written up for all the C40 cities. And remember, the cities of the world host about 70% of the world's population. So if you can reduce the carbon footprint of every single urban dweller to 2.9 CO2e, then you have partially accomplished your goal of meeting Paris targets. And in fact, that's what former mayor of Edmonton, Don Iveson, said in a published report, and it's in the lockdown uh, uh, Alberta Prosperity presentation, um, he said that cities are going to solve the climate problem. Yeah, and, you know, talking about 15-minute cities, it's a new thing that people are talking about, but I think people are just becoming awake to what 15-minute cities are. They've been in the works, as you said, uh, since, you know, 2019, maybe even sooner, they were written into the zoning code in Alberta back in 2020 and or in Edmonton, I guess. Edmontonians are just becoming aware of this. And, you know, the excuse the mayor say is, oh, it's just a zoning uh, code to make it more convenient for people to live there. And I see it as, as I said before we started recording, um, you have to build the ant farm before you pour in the ants and then close the lid so that your ants can't escape. And that's what I think is happening here. You can't tell people you can't leave your neighborhood until you put everything you think they need in the neighborhood. And then it just becomes a bit of an open air climate prison. Right. And, uh, you know, if you look at the origination of um, the 15 minute city, it started in Europe with a fellow named Carlos Moreno. And he's an urban planner. Now, in places in Europe, you know, you have these very old cities, 2,000-year-old cities like Barcelona, London, England, Paris, um, where they were planned for foot traffic and maybe some wagons and horses. They were not planned for cars. And especially in Europe, um, I think it was in around 2008, Europe incentivized diesel cars over conventional ice cars because they said, oh, well, there's less CO2 emissions from diesel cars, except that there's more nitrous oxides and, and smog soot from diesel cars. 
So they incentivized diesel cars to save the planet and unintentionally uh, ended up with horrible air pollution. At times, Paris's air pollution is worse than that of Beijing because of this. So they did have a need to fix the air pollution issue. They started doing alternate days license plates for um, driving in the city. They came up with all kinds of incentives to try and keep people to stay home or take public transit. So they have a real issue there, but they also have extremely high density. Um, we have a just transition or sorry, we have a um, 15 minute cities presentation also on our blog or on our website that I did for us, which talks about how Barcelona has a population density of something like uh, 14,000 people per square kilometer. So that would be like the all all the population of Butasquin or Camrose or Brooks. Fort Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, all crammed into a few blocks. So yeah, it makes perfect sense in a context like that to try and create more green spaces for people, to try and limit their need to travel by providing services as close as possible. Um, but, you know, we have lots of space here. It's minus 40 or minus 19 or whatever it is. It's cold a lot of the time here, snowy and icy. So, you know, as a, an older boomer, even when I can walk to the store, if it's icy out, I'm not going to walk there. It doesn't matter if it's 15 minutes or half an hour. I'm just not going to go because, you know, people who are older and even young people, if you slip and fall on the ice, you're finished. So, you know, it's not applicable to Canadian cities for the most part. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, there, was, then, there was another well, thing you pointed out. Sorry to interrupt. In one of your Friends of Science videos, I'm sure it was you. Um, that uh, the, one of the reasons the new world was settled was because people were trying to escape the overcrowding and population densities in Europe. And so what are we doing now, like a century later, replicating it? That's right. I don't know if I have that book here, but um, yeah, here it is. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and see, this is where the climate zealots continue to make the big mistake. I, I'm not, this is not a sponsored comment. I just love this book though. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> this is, these are the, the pioneers who came here to the new world. They were sold on the idea that this is the new Andalusia because we're on the same latitude. Everyone thought, well, you know, it'll be the same kind of weather over there. So they were completely unprepared for the fact that North America is horribly cold. Our winters are terribly long. Our growing seasons are really short. And, it, and also the reason why they left, as you said, they wanted freedom. They wanted to have access to land. They wanted to escape this structured class system that didn't allow them to have any mobility. Some of them were prostitutes. You know, some of them were orphans. Some of them were prisoners. I mean, this was their key to freedom. And for the state over there, it was a way of getting rid of people that were just sort of costing the system and useless eaters, I guess you right. would say in today's terms. You know, let's put them on a boat and send them over there. We don't care. If they survive, great. Then we'll get more beaver pelts and furs because they'll have to trade with the local native people. And if they don't survive, who cares? <laughs> so, but yes, the whole point of coming here was to be free. And, you know, um, just going back to a, a, for a moment on the population density thing, the irony of um, Edmonton and Calgary, for instance, trying to create 15-minute cities where all your resources are in one place. Um, the irony is found in a book book by what's his name josh o'kane he wrote a book called sideways which is about the sidewalk labs experiment of google in toronto um and they were planning to take the waterfront area which i think was around 12 acres and turn it into a smart city right uh, where everything could be all in one place and one of the obsessions apparently of larry page is it who's uh, one of the founders of google and sergey brin they're they're obsessed with transportation they don't want people driving individual cars they want them using automated um you know self-driving taxis basically that you can call up anytime you want anyway with the with this uh, this uh, smart city uh, one thing that always pops up, and it's also in the Simpsons movie, is how to put a dome over it. Right. <laughs> but when you look at Edmonton and Calgary, what do we have? Edmonton, we have um, West Edmonton Mall. <laughs> it basically is a dome city. 
Right. We have Chinook Center and the other fabulous malls in Calgary, Market Mall, you know, Tata Mall. These are domed cities, uh, except that, you know, some do not have attached residential facilities. But in fact, this is a place where you can go and all of your 15 minute shopping is right there. Of course, you do have to drive to it. But once you're there, you can spend the whole day there. And many people do, Um, you know, and uh, you can have transit stops nearby, which cities have arranged. So, uh, you know. They're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. And because of lockdowns, I think people now are very suspicious. Probably four years ago, these ideas would have flown quite well. And the whole idea of, oh, a green space and having things local, that would be fabulous for me. People probably would have bought into it. And now people see, wait a minute, (laughs) 15 minute city, they're blocking off main roads. What happens when they bring the robot dogs and the robot police? And when I try to leave, they want my digital ID and I don't have permission or my social credit score isn't good enough or I don't have enough digital currency to take the bus downtown or call the auto uh, driving, self-driving taxi. People see that. They understand now. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And they say they're doing it to alleviate traffic congestion. Sure, sure, sure. Um, You know, I I think a lot of people see the car as one of the great equalizers of humanity, where, you know, long distance transportation was only available to the wealthy for a very long time. And then Mm -hmm. the the advent of automobiles being affordable to normal people, to middle class people, I think it was a great liberator. For humanity, people could travel for leisure instead of just, you know, for emergencies. It became something that people did for fun that they never did before. And having the vehicle taken away from you and having that ability to travel taken away from you for nearly three years, I think the left has overplayed their hand here. Well, I I think it was a grand experiment because, ironically, the Smart Cities Project, which apparently... um, Justin Trudeau had been planning with Eric Schmidt for some time in advance. You know, they went to great lengths at Waterfront to make sure it was an independent evaluation. And then when it was announced, uh, Justin Trudeau said, yeah, well, Eric and I have been working on this for a long, long time. (laughs) And everyone's like, wait, you have? Anyway, it was abruptly canceled in May of 2020. Why? Because there was no need anymore because the entire world had gone into a smart city. The entire world became a smart city because they were observing. And we know that we were surveilled by Health Canada, by uh, the armed forces and all kinds of people all over the world were surveilling everyone's habits and cell phones during lockdowns. And they probably drew on their experience of trying to design the smart city. Um, And I now have forgotten what the question was that you had. It's okay. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) it's great. (laughs) So, you know, it, it, uh, people understood it, that uh, this uh, this could be um, a very compromising situation. Oh, yes, we were talking about cars. Sorry. Yeah, yes. I wanted to say that, uh, you know, during World War II, my mom was a driver in England. And uh, she often used to tell me how before the war, she would go with uh, a neighbor who was a mechanic and he had to deliver cars all over England. And she would tell me how she thus traveled all over England. And at the time I was thinking, okay, so what? And then it struck me when she was telling me about becoming a driver of one and three ton trucks that had no synchronized gear and no uh, modern clutches. You know, they had, uh, it was manual stick shift. Yeah. As they say, if you can't find them, grind them. With if you were were a tiny little five foot two and a half woman like my mom was, why in heck would you ever want to do this? Well, thousands of women joined the auxiliary territorial or terrestrial service so that they could learn to drive because they wanted that freedom. And after that, that freedom proliferated because people knew how to drive. They were they they were all light duty mechanics like. Princess Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth, was a light-duty mechanic. Mm -hmm. She served over the fence from my mom um, at the Welsh Girls' School. So, you know, this driving was the expression of freedom, as was flying. You know, it. it, uh, my uncle, who was lost in the war, he he wrote letters to my mom about how much he loved flying, how much he loved that freedom, you know, being up there above the clouds. 
And I think millions of people relate to that. Yeah. And it was taken from us. Um, I, I wanted to ask you um, about the just transition, which I think is anything but just. I mean, a just transition into unemployment, I guess. Um, but along with the just transition is this claim that it's okay if we phase out your job because we're going to transition you into all these sustainable jobs that don't exist, that have never materialized. We saw this play out in real time with the coal phase out here in Alberta, where they decided to close up the coal mines in towns that relied on coal for the local power plant. And the green jobs that were to replace those phase out jobs, they never materialized to the point where these towns are devastated. And sometimes people are underwater on their mortgages and we saw suicide spike. Yeah, well, you know, it's a fallacy that there's a just transition. First of all, wind and solar supply almost nothing of the world's energy supply. And uh, in Canada, people like to say, oh, our grid is very clean because of hydropower. Well, you don't make a hydro dam with wind and solar. You make it with fossil fuels. So uh, we recently did a video explainer on the so-called Sustainable Jobs Act, which they terminology now to replace just transition. And uh, again, you know, if you go back to how things are made, you find that things are only made with oil, gas and coal. So while in this sustainable jobs plan, they're claiming, oh, we're going to create a new market called, uh, you know, critical minerals and we could uh, clean energy Canada, which is a tides make way offshoot is claiming that, oh, the new market will be EV batteries and the critical mineral supply chain for them. Well, (laughs) as it turns out, what do you need to go mining? Right. (laughs) Lots of oil, gas and coal. You need tons of it, (laughs) you know, and uh, 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 there's actually not a critical mineral supply chain that exists in the world to meet any of these net zero or net 2050 targets. It just doesn't exist. There's not enough mines. There's not enough time to create the mines. To get a mine up and running takes at least 16 years. So unless there are already thousands of mines in Canada that are on the verge of approval, we won't be hitting any 2030 or 2050 targets. And like I said, you know, it's horribly devastating. If you've got a mine in a remote area, how do you think they get that stuff out of there? Well, you got to clear a forest, build a road or a railway, maybe even a landing strip, depending on where you are and what you have to bring in. You have to truck in all kinds of cement. You got to put up power lines or you've got to build on site a power generation unit. And what's it going to use? It's not going to be wind and solar and it's not going to be hydrogen. It's going to be oil, gas or coal. So, you know, these are just practical realities. So the whole sustainable jobs thing is another unicorn uh, fantasy by the green movement. And unfortunately, the problem is we're being pushed into this stuff. We're spending lots of money on it and we're going to get stuck halfway without sufficient energy to drive society without enough money to complete some of these projects and without enough energy resources and infrastructure to go back to our present uh, working state. You know, they're going to run us into the ground like in Europe. It's very dangerous. Now, you've actually pointed out the problem with the push for green cars, um, because, you know, as as you know, Canada has mandated that all new vehicle sales by, I think, 2035, they have to be net zero cars. But we don't have enough grid to right. charge these cars. So they're going to force you to buy these cars, which don't work all that well in minus 19, which it is today. And they don't work all that well across vast distances, which is the case in Canada. So we've got cold and vast distances. Combine those two, you have almost no range. And how are you going to charge them with a grid that doesn't have enough capacity? Right. And the problem is that the people in Ottawa are looking at it and saying, oh, well, we just need to put in more chargers across the <laughs> Well, they have to plug into something. (laughs) Yeah, and so you can put in a few that have a diesel generator hiding in the background. (laughs) That's not really 
solving the problem, is it? But um, in, in fact, uh, Kent Zare, who's a professional engineer, did an analysis for us some years ago, and he found that we would have to build the equivalent of eight Site C dams. Uh, because we need an additional 10,000 megawatts of power. And subsequently, someone just wrote me a couple of weeks ago and told me that Site C is actually only, it's putting out half its nameplate capacity. So that would mean 16 to 19 Site C dam equivalents. Site C dam started back in the 1980s. It's billions of dollars over budget. These projects take the minimum of 20 to 30 years to build. And um, they they cost a fortune. So, you know, we we don't have the time, if time is the factor, to build these additional power generation facilities. And that's just for EVs. You know, the intention of net zero 2050 is that everything would be electrified, right? That your home heating would be electrified, that you would not cook with natural gas, you would cook only with, you know, instant pots and uh, what are those uh, special induction induction stoves, stoves, yeah. So again, I want to point out to people, these are sophisticated marketing schemes that are dressed up in green. So if they can sell you an induction stove because they think that you think that you're saving the planet, good for them, you know, but look at everything through that eye of marketing and you'll start to see the whole climate movement in a completely different light. Well, and there's no pleasing these people also. I mean, sightsee dam you would think okay these people should the these people the environmentalists they should be in favor of this because it's hydroelectricity but no you have the likes of david suzuki complaining about sightsee dam um i again i go back to a video that you did where you noted that david suzuki simultaneously is against sightsee dam but also complained that there was nowhere to charge his electric vehicle as he went across the country and he couldn't make the connection between the two yeah yeah no it's it's ludicrous you know we need people who understand uh how energy works and how the power grid works and unfortunately the power grid is very 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 complicated and i want to make a point here you know uh the market surveillance authority just issued a report that Alberta had seven grid level three alerts in 2022. That means that they were about to start rolling blackouts. So that means that we were on the brink of a very serious energy situation in Alberta, in Alberta, where we have all of this energy. Why is that? It's because of the NDP climate policy from 2015 where they accelerated coal phase out and they got rid of the most modern plants that we had. These are now being converted to natural gas. But in the interim, we're a thousand megawatts short from December, 2014, we're a thousand megawatts short of dispatchable power today. And that's a real risk. That's a real risk for the province, for business, for hospitals. And now we have these crazy doctors of CAPE trying to phase out natural gas. Well, Alberta runs on natural gas now. What are you going to run your hospital on? What are you going to make your PPEs from and your little mask and your little visor? You know, it's we have entered a, a time of societal madness where facts and evidence mean nothing anymore. Yeah. And, you know, you just said that Alberta runs on natural gas. And I'm going to correct you there because it's not entirely true, because when we are experiencing these grid shortfalls, we end up buying coal fired electricity from Wyoming and Montana, our good neighbors save us. But while, while we phase out coal here and as you say, you know, like we had, you know, almost to the point of rolling brownouts. We are the Saudi Arabia of coal. I think we have 800 years of clean yes. burning coal under our feet. It leaches out of the ground all over the place. It's there. You can kick a riverbank yeah. and coal comes out. And we've decided to go off it in favor of natural gas, which we're not at capacity yet. So we have to buy coal-fired electricity at a, an increased rate from our neighbors. Right. Yes. And I will mention we do have a couple of coal plants that are still online. Yep. They're running at maximum capacity practically every day. And so that creates a stable baseline. You know, like people like Pemina Institute say, oh, there's no need for baseload power anymore because <laughs> they don't understand how the power grid works. 
after all these years of being activists, they're busy thinking that, you know, wind and solar can provide. Well, there are many days in those grid alerts, you'll find that there was no wind and no solar. And when there's no wind, actually the wind turbines draw from the grid to keep from freezing up. So they're actually a burden on the grid in winter as well as being uh, frequently useless. And again, you know, I, you know, if there were a complementary system uh, with a small penetration, fine. You know, sometimes they can be valuable. But what's happening now where the push is to go all wind and solar, it's an impossible equation and it will only end in tears and Albertans will be stripped of their wealth. These 20 and 40 year PPAs that cities are signing, you know, they've got the cities signing these power purchase agreements for 20 and 40 years on renewables. These are going to bankrupt the cities and bankrupt the taxpayers. And they're very hard to get out of. You know, once you realize, holy mackerel, this is costing us a fortune, but we're not actually getting energy from it. What are we going to do? Well, pay up. <laughs> yeah, or when a big snowstorm hits, as was the case in Texas a couple of years ago, when you only have green energy on the grid because it was incentivized in Texas. Again, Texas, same problem as Alberta. Lots of energy, but incentivized uh, through the federal government in the United States to put up all these wind turbines. They get hit with a snowstorm and they've got no capacity on the grid and people died in an, yes. in an energy rich state because they relied they relied on green energy. Yeah, 700 people died. Terrible. And that could easily happen in Alberta. Yeah, I think to a greater extent, just because of the cold associated with our snow that they didn't have there, it, you freeze pretty quick here. Now, I wanted to ask you uh, something you just you touched on briefly about the push for net zero health care. And so we see it from these crazy activist doctors. Um, that's nothing new. But now we're seeing it from the people who got very, very rich on the lockdowns of COVID during the pandemic, sort of now we see as the left says the intersection of two ideas where we've got climate change and pharmaceuticals coming together. And finally, we can also save a lot of carbon because people don't know, but the uh, healthcare uh, services actually uh, produce 4% of uh, carbon emissions in the world. That's on average in the world, but in advanced uh, countries like the US, and I'm sure it's the same in Canada, 8% <coughs> of carbon emissions come from the healthcare sector. And it's mostly in hospitals. So going to a hospital is bad for you, bad for your health, but you cost money and also you generate a lot of carbon. So if we can keep people out of the hospital and cure them quickly, we will really ha affect uh, 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 people, but also uh, countries and societies. Uh, in a big way. About the uh, net zero healthcare, this is really a thing. And it's shocking and ugly to see the CEO of AstraZeneca talking about it. Because, of course, if you're running a factory producing vaccines, you're probably using a lot of energy and it's not coming from oil, gas and coal. And he's talking about how expensive it is to go to a hospital. So you shouldn't go. And if you have a vaccine, then you won't have to go. Well, that's absurd because people go to hospitals for many other things, broken limbs, car accidents, accidents around the house, blood pressure, whatever. Thousands of different ailments are treated at hospitals. So these people are now thinking that, well, the best hospital, the greenest hospital is the one you don't build. <laughs> this is a direct quote from, uh, I think it's called Greener Healthcare. It's a ENGO in the States. Uh, there's also a paper in uh, the British Medical Journal called Net Zero Healthcare, where the proponents, two of whom are from Canada, from the CAPE organization, are, are saying that, you know, because the world pivoted so quickly during COVID lockdowns, it should be easy to cut healthcare emissions in half by 2030. By, that's in seven years. So they're not talking about turning off a light switch. They're talking about actively reducing care. And the reason I say that, we have examples of that, certainly in the UK, where elderly people were treated with midazolam and morphine when it was not necessarily in their best interest and they died of it. And some of the hospitals there are being questioned under caution now. 
And in Canada, the proliferation of the MAID program. Because if you have people voluntarily die, then you don't have to treat them in hospital. So it's one way to solve the waiting list of uh, the medical uh, services in Canada. And, um, you know, and appear to be a compassionate provider uh, who wants to give you dignity. And in some cases, it is true that people would choose that path. But now that they're planning to expand it to mental health care, um, you know, they're, you are the carbon that they're trying to reduce. It's sickening. Yeah, especially when we've seen young people infected with this climate change anxiety. Young people are saying that they're depressed, that they worry about the end of the world, thanks to the constant inundation of climate doomsday propaganda. We've seen people uh, self-immolate. I think it was on the steps of the Supreme Court in the United States. A grown man, by the way, did this to uh, protest climate change. And now, as you rightly point out, Canada is changing the protocols around the MAID program to extend it to include people who are mentally ill. So where does this leave us? Right. And there's another report by that same consulting firm, Arup, the one that did the deadline 2020 for the cities. And it talks about how uh, the carbon footprint of medical services in uh, different countries around the world in Canada is in the top 10 of a huge carbon footprint. Well, yeah, because we're in a really vast, cold country. What do you think? And the other day, I saw someone comparing our system to that of Austria and saying, oh, how fabulous the system is in Austria. Well, Austria is the size of a postage stamp. Right. So you have all of your medical services in, in your 15-minute city. <laughs> yeah. And everybody can get to it in a hop, skip, and a jump. So, of course, that also cuts a lot of the cost of providing service. Whereas here, you know, we have a diverse number of specialists. They're very spread out across the country and they're not concentrated in one place where, uh, you know, if you need two or three different kinds of treatments, you can't go to all of them in the same place because they're we're just too small a population and too big a country. And healthcare is just such a very diverse uh, set of needs for people that is very difficult to solve them all in one place. But of course, that brings me to the next point where I believe that deep fake doctors and AI are the next solution. So when they say, oh, well, you're going to have health services within your 15-minute city, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, in Calgary, I can walk down the street to what's called the Rockwood Medical Center, and there's a, a few doctors there and a pharmacy. So that's handy. But that, you know, we can't create that everywhere because there's not enough doctors. So they're going to create these little pods. And there's an example in the lockdown video um, that I did for Alberta Prosperity, uh, an example from France where they have like a little medical pod with a bed and all kinds of instruments. The patient goes in, sits down, and on the screen, there's a doctor telezooming in from somewhere and as you use these different things to investigate yourself the doctor and ai read the information and uh, uh, resolve whatever issues you may have and provide a prescription or whatever so in one sense this could be helpful it could be wonderful as an older person i wonder if the prescription will be one that will kill me and i'm serious about saying that yeah um, because, uh, you know, net zero 2030 and net zero 2050 just happened to coincide with when all the boomers enter retirement years and when all of the boomers die. Uh, and this is going to be a huge burden on society in terms of health care and in terms of pension draw and in terms of retiring workers uh, and in terms of loss of skills in the community because the boomers will be out of the workforce. For the most part, so you know, there I I believe that there is a depopulation agenda in process, unfortunately, and you know, on climate change, right? Too many people. <laughs> but again, you know, if you read uh, what's his name, where did it go? Peter Zahan's book, mm-hmm. 
Uh, I just had it. Anyway, Peter Zahan's book, uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, about the global collapse. He writes in that book quite extensively about how the world is actually naturally depopulating. We don't need to do any of these things. So uh, I think that uh, people should really wake up to these possibilities. Yeah, and uh, I've course, seen Elon uh, Musk talk about how he thinks there are not enough people having babies right now. Um, right. And I'm inclined to believe him. He seems to be a bit of a futurist. Right. Yes. Uh, oh, here's the other one. Yes. Well, Peter Zahan is a demographer, geographer. Mm-hmm. So this is the book that Peter Zahan talks about how demographics worldwide are collapsing and the implications of that. And uh, this one is uh, by Dr. Aaron Cariati in the U.S., and he's talking about the impending biomedical security state. So, you know, the concerns about the 15-minute city are also correlated to digital ID, um, digital currency, uh, the fourth industrial revolution uh, by our friend Klaus Schwab, (laughs) you know, which is really lockdowns open the door for that because they destroyed a lot of the conventional systems. And now to rebuild these solutions, these biotechnical solutions will be offered. And I think the people who want to do these things to us have quickly identified who would be compliant and how quickly society could be compliant with these things. Now, I wanted to, um, before I take up almost your entire morning. I wanted to ask you um, or or talk to you about something that is uh, not climate change related, but also something that you work on um, in the pursuit of truth. And that is the residential school issue. And you said to me, I'd like to talk about um, the statements of NDP former leader, Thomas Mulcair, but also NDP MP Leah Gazan, I think is how it Uh, You say her name. So the floor is yours, Michelle. Take it away. Yeah, well, recently uh, in October of last year, the entire House of Commons voted to recognize the residential schools as a genocide, which is completely untrue. Not even the Truth and Reconciliation Committee ever came to that conclusion. They concluded that it might be termed a cultural genocide, but that's quite different than actively trying to murder thousands of people, which is what genocide is really all about. Um, so Thomas Mulcair recently came out uh, saluting Leah Gazan, saying that her motion now to have anyone who questions the residential schools as genocide treated as a hate speech uh, denier, equivalent to a Holocaust denier. Um, and so he said that in his article, he said things like that, uh, you know, anyone who's seen the reports knows that these schools were killing people and that they were designed to destroy people's lives. And this is also not supported by the evidence. Now, what's interesting is that it turns out that Mulcair has a thesis called the Pinocchio syndrome, where, uh, and this was written about in a book published in Quebec, and I have a reference to a Ludivoir story on it where he feels that you can lie to the media because they probably aren't going to check you. And I would say that this is the case exactly in this case. And it does a true disservice to all the people involved, including those who were harmed in residential schools. Um, Because we now have set up a kind of a adversary situation in society that should not exist. If you actually read the history of residential schools. If you read the work of Robert Carney, who is an eminent Canadian historian, he's also the father of Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada and Bank of England governor. He was a residential school administrator. He also wrote many deep and thoughtful articles about residential schools, acknowledging the problems with them, but also pointing out the value of them. And uh, I think it does a disservice to all the people who served there in that time when the residential school, in many cases, was the local social service net. They took in all kinds of people, the sick, the lame, you know, they really did their Christian duty to support the local community. And so, yes, 
Are there graves at some of these places? Yes, there probably are. Who's in them? Well, we're not sure because most of the kids who went to residential schools were well-documented and uh, the deaths were also well-documented. They're on the record. I mean, you know, these were religious order schools. How do we know going back in history who, uh, say, Justin Trudeau is related to from France? Mm-hmm. Because all of these Catholic churches have records. Who married who? Who was related to who? Uh, so this is how, you know, when you go on Ancestry.com, this is how you find out your ancestors because of all these church records. Um, because until very recently, it was the church that kept all these records. So, uh, you know, it's really a blood libel that Thomas Mulcair has thrown upon all Canadians in claiming, making these outrageous claims that he did in his recent CTV article. And for Leah Gazan to claim that people should not be allowed to question uh, genocide at residential schools. Well, how did uh, Senator Gladstone survive that school and become a senator? If Have you read any of Thompson Highway's work where he talks about how this gave him the leg up that he needed. You know, these stories are are swept aside because of the tragic stories that are the only ones that capture the headlines. So it's really, uh, it's a terrible thing. And, And obviously, we need to have freedom of speech. We need to be able to question everything and to do so in a scholarly manner with evidence. Uh, when you take away people's freedom of speech, what happens is, according to Amartya Sen, who is a very well-respected uh, economist in the world and scholar, what happens is the society tends to collapse and you end up with people dying of famine. So, you know, th- this is a, a very serious issue trying to limit speech in Canada. And uh, I mean, going back to what we were talking about with my mom driving in World War II, like 12 of my Jewish relatives were murdered in Poland. And my uncle was lost in a night raid over Essen, trying to stop the uh, World War II and the Holocaust that was going on. So it's he was fighting for freedom. My mom was fighting for freedom. My dad was fighting for freedom. My other uncle who landed at Dieppe and was wounded there was fighting for freedom. And these freedoms are gradually being taken away by people who are uh, very left-wing, ill-informed on the historical events uh, and people who are um, climate zealots, you know. And as I've told you before, Ultimately, Deutsche Bank would like to have an eco-dictatorship. And I think all these things are intertwined, ultimately. That's my commentary. No, I completely agree with you. It's part of a broader issue of making questioning the official narrative illegal or um, canceling you if you question the official narrative. And even if the left is right on all of these issues, let's say they're 100% right on residential schools. Let's say they're 100% right on climate change. Let's say they're 100% right on COVID. It should never be illegal to be wrong. And that's what they want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, society has progressed through persistent questioning of the so-called consensus. This is part of uh, a statement from the from the National Academies Press on being a scientist, responsible conduct in research. And the the statement is that, you know, it's hard-nosed skepticism and persistent questioning against the consensus that has actually made society progress. And you can see that, especially in medical science, where, you know, for many years, people used to have their stomachs removed if they had um, ulcers, because it was believed that there was some weird thing going on. And it was only this one doctor who thought, you know, that's funny. I think that it's a bacteria. And he ended up drinking some of the fluid from someone's uh, stomach. Yeah. He infected himself on purpose and found and discovered, yes, it's the H. pylori bacteria. This is what's doing it. And thus we were able to resolve a, a very serious health issue. 
but you know they called him crazy at the time or uh emil Simmelweis, right who wanted people to wash their hands after doing an autopsy you shouldn't be delivering a baby right after unless you really wash your hands well they called him crazy too but guess what happened during covid wash your hands right and that is one of the main ways to prevent infection yeah i mean just look at um eugenics you know all the fancy all the smart all the progressive people who thought of themselves as compassionate believed in eugenics um yes. if not for skepticism we would be still doing phrenology they'd be measuring my head to decide <laughs> if i were worthy of reproduction um but it was skeptics people who said you know what i'm willing to go against the grain and see and be unliked, really, um, be a, a renegade in my time in pursuit of the truth. And we need more people like that. And I think you're one of those people. Oh, oh, thank you. I just can't shut up. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, Michelle, tell us how people can uh, find the work of Friends of Science and more importantly, support the work of Friends of Science, because you guys are just this little tiny mom and pop shop operation you guys make great videos, by the way. I watch them all uh, and rewatch them and rewatch them because I feel like I'm learning so much. But you're really up against multi-billion dollar green, I'll call them corporations. They they say they're NGOs, they say they're charities, but quite frankly, they are part of that greenwashing marketing scheme. So how do people help you fight your David and Goliath battle? Uh, well, uh, you can join us. You can become a member. We're online at friendsofscience.org. Uh, we're in our 20th year of operation, and some people are just sending us a $20 donation um, to contact at friendsofscience.org. If you become a member, then you also get our newsletters, and one is called CLISI, and it's dedicated to recent client, climate uh, writings and papers. The other is called Extracts, and it deals more with sort of the political uh, news of the day. These are things that are not widely reported in the mainstream press. And we also issue a number of reports and press releases. So you can subscribe or unsubscribe to whatever you prefer to read. Um, and, uh, you know, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn and YouTube. And so, you know, join us, join in the conversation and ask us questions put comments in our videos. We love to hear from you. So that's how. Uh, free and civil debate. As you say, that's all you ever wanted. Yeah. Michelle, Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. And um, thanks so much for your dogged pursuit of the truth, even when it's unpopular. Um, and even when it seems as though you're up against all the forces of the universe sometimes. Thank you. of reserving the right to be wrong, I've got a letter to Sheila that I'll answer today, but I should tell you how to get in touch with me. If you have a question or a comment about the work that I do here at Rebel News specifically on the show, it's really easy to get a hold of me. I'll give you my email right now. It's Sheila at rebelnews.com. Put gun show letters in the subject line so that I know it's related to the gun show and it's easier for me to find. Then I get sometimes hundreds of emails a day. So sometimes they sneak through the cracks. And also, again, that's sort of the, the deal with the letter that I'm going to read today. But also don't hesitate to leave a question or a comment on wherever you're watching us, on whatever platform you're watching us on, be it Rumble or YouTube. Sometimes I go looking over there for your comments too. So it's not exclusively email letters to Sheila. But I will answer an email letter to Sheila today. And sometimes I forget that people don't know things. Like, I don't know what the public doesn't know, and I should not assume. And that's, I guess, a lesson to me, is I shouldn't assume that people who don't work on the internet or in broadcasting, I shouldn't assume that they don't know how YouTube works. So. If this person took the time to type out an email to me, then I assume or I should assume that maybe more of you 
have these same concerns, but you just didn't take the time to write to me. So let me answer this question or these questions on behalf of everybody who might be wondering this one thing in this email. And it comes from Brian. I'm not going to say Brian's last name. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to be honest with you. The email is slightly passive aggressive, but I'm not going to take it personally. He writes, Sheila, maybe you wouldn't mind answering a couple of questions for me. I always try to follow Rebel Daily on Rumble, but all of a sudden I can't get it on Rumble. I have to watch it on YouTube. But now I wonder how live you really are when you have started putting captions for the hearing impaired on the bottom of the screen and the printed phrases are on the screen long before you actually speak the words yourself. And FYI, whoever is putting this on the screen can't phrase or even spell things properly and nobody there seems to even care that there might be a slight problem. It's okay if you ignore this request as I have sent queries to Ezra and Rebel in the past and have not received an answer to any of them. It will just leave me with my probably correct views about what's happening to Rebel News. What's happening to us, by the way? What do you think is happening to us? And all the wonderful people that used to work there. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Thanks, Brian. You know, Brian, I'm going to correct you um, because you are wrong. Now, I host Rebel Daily or I co-host Rebel Daily. I think the majority of the time, more than any of the other on-screen talent except for David Menzies, who is the anchor of the show. And let me assure you, we are live, always live, when we record Rebel Daily. Because not only am I a journalist here at Rebel News, but I also do other things at the company. I'm the head of editorial. And so my mornings are consumed with the journalism and I have editorial stuff and duties in the afternoon. That's how the sausage gets made here at Rebel News. And I have a lot of meetings that take place in the afternoon, too. But whatever I'm doing, whatever I am doing, I have to drop it all so that I can be in this exact chair talking to that exact camera with the studio in my ear at 11 a.m. Alberta time so that I can be 100% live and completely unscripted when I co-host Rebel Daily. So let me assure you. We are live. I don't know why you would think we aren't live, but we are live. If we <laughs> if we weren't live, would we would we leave some of the ridiculous stuff in or would we edit that out? Right? And as far as not being able to find us on Rumble, 24 hours ago, as I'm recording this, 24 hours ago, I was co-hosting Rebel Daily with my friend and colleague Tamara Ugolini because normal anchor, David Menzies, was off on special assignment. And so I just popped open the Rumble app on my phone. And uh, 24 hours ago, 64 comments, Rebel Daily Roundup, hosted by myself and Tamara Ugolini. We were talking about Trudeau crying racism instead of investigating foreign influence in our elections and David Suzuki bashing the Freedom Convoy. So we are indeed on Rumble. I don't know what's going on, why you can't find it, but I just double-checked both on my phone, but also on my computer. So I went through the app, but also through the website. And yes, indeed, we are there. Now, as far as the closed captioning being wrong, that's YouTube's AI. Again, let me assure you that no Rebel News employee is involved in the improper captioning of our live show. That's YouTube's AI. If you're watching it after the fact, they, the AI adds the closed captioning for the hearing impaired. So uh, I'm sorry if you assumed that the people who work behind the scenes here at Rebel, Rebel News are barely literate, but that isn't the case. It's YouTube's AI. Now, maybe that's my fault. Maybe the AI cannot pick up my uniquely Albertan turns of phrases, turns of phrase, maybe that's how you say it. Maybe it doesn't do well with my slightly nasally Northern Alberta accent. I realize I do have that a little bit. Maybe, you know, Silicon Valley-based YouTube doesn't do well with me. But again, no human being at Rebel News is involved in getting those closed captionings wrong. So 
to summarize, we are live. We are on Rumble. No human being that works at Rebel News is getting the closed captioning wrong. Oh, and one last thing. As I said, we do get hundreds of emails a day. All of us do. We do our very best to answer them, but sometimes they slip through the cracks. So that's why I thought I would take the time to answer this email today to clear up some things because if Brian's got questions, maybe the rest of you do too. So that's that. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. <laughs>